Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 8 through chapter 5, verse 1. The man speaks. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the den of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard with and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. The woman speaks. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. The man. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And the others, eat, friend, drink, and be drunk with love. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for reading that for us. We're going to spend a little while reflecting on this text together. Uh, there's an interesting story about Jesus uh, told in John chapter 2, where yeah, he's at a wedding, and at this wedding he turns water into wine. And the basic story, if you're unfamiliar with it, is, so he's at this wedding, uh, Jesus is with his disciples and his family, but no one yet knows who he is. He hasn't started teaching yet, he hasn't done any miracles and at the wedding, at sort of this, probably a multi-day feast of some kind, the family runs out of wine. And Mary, his mother, tells his servants, hey, just do whatever Jesus tells you to do. You know, generally good policy for life. But then Jesus miraculously makes 150 gallons of the best wine. 450 one-liter bags of, of, of milk. And, and then John writes something very interesting. And it's kind of the part of the story that we kind of skip past. Right at the end, he says this. This was the first of Jesus' signs that he did at Cana in Galilee, and listen to this, and manifested his glory. So what John's saying, in more plain English, is there was something about that sign, something about 450 liters of wine that, that tells us something very important about how wonderful and magnificent and amazing God is. Now think about that. The picture we have of the wedding at Cana is Jesus, probably with a smile on his face, making the very best wine they'd ever had uh, so that a wedding feast can continue. That, that's, that's who God is. Later on in the Gospels, we read that Jesus is accused of eating and drinking too much. <laughs> See, the God we, we find all throughout the scriptures, the Christian God, is a God who both creates and delights in the pleasures of life. He's a God who loves good things because he made them. He didn't give to humanity a bland world a pleasureless world, but a world that's chock full of things to enjoy. And if you turn to the opening pages of the scripture, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, when God's busy creating everything, if you read the scriptures in the original Hebrew, you keep seeing this word, tov. It says the sun and the moon, they're tov, and the seas and all that they contain, tov. And sometimes, I think in the ESV, it translates it as good. 
but it's more robust than that. It means pleasing and beautiful and sublime, sort of like this multifaceted version of good. God is a God who creates things that are pleasurable and good. Crunchy apple on a fall day, the first snowfall of winter, a summer sunset. The Bible says all these things are tov. They're good. And in the case of today's text, sexual intimacy, also tov. You know, in the scriptures, again, if you read the first couple chapters of Genesis, sex precedes sin. Before sin enters the world in Genesis 3, there's already a man, there's already a woman, they are together, they are naked and unashamed. And it's not just that, but the very first command is, uh, given in the scriptures, is not the negative command, the trees, you know, touch this one, don't touch whatever, that comes later. The very first command given to humanity is the command to be fruitful and multiply. It's a command related to sex. To the intimacy shared between a husband and a wife. In the beginning, you see, sex was also tov. It was also good. There's nothing to correct, no evil to be overcome. And so in the garden, when the world was right, when our bodies and our hearts functioned correctly, sex was an unambiguous good. It was given to humanity by a God who loves us. And I don't think it's any surprise that as we come to the Song of Songs, the text that Stephen read, garden language is abundant once again. <laughs> It's, it's a kind of recapitulation. It's a, it's a remix of the Garden of Eden. And what we're going to talk about today is what wisdom does the Song of Songs have for us with regards to sex between a wife and a husband? And moreover, for any of us, you're like, well, I'm not married or whatever. Um, what does sexual intimacy teach us, any of us, about God and Jesus and how this world operates? So hopefully there's something for everyone this morning. But here's how we're going to take our text. First, I want to talk about the locked garden Then we'll talk about the unlocked garden, and then thirdly, we'll reflect on what I'm going to call the real world. Now, two weeks ago when we were back in this series, we took a week off last week because our friend Kevin uh, was here preaching. Anyways, but we we concluded that sermon with the understanding that the couple's kind of arriving uh, to their wedding day. They're getting married. They're gazing lovingly at each other. She's looking at him out from underneath her veil, and he's looking at her, and he's like, hey, the the shadows have fled on the morning of the wedding. You know, the sun has come up. You know, it's time time for us to be married. And verse 8 then opens with this invitation where the man wants her to come with him, to come down from the mountains, come down from where the lions and the leopards live. And in the context of the whole book, this is an interesting metaphor, because if you recall, for a long time, she was in a safe place behind a wall, you know, with her family, while he was out in the wilderness. But now it's pictured as she being in the wilderness amongst the mountains and wild animals, and he's inviting her to join him somewhere else. And the simple idea here is that they are starting a new life and journey together. They're going someplace neither of them has ever been. And verse 9 marks this important point in, in the book of the Song of Songs. For the first time, the man calls her my sister and my bride. You see that there? Now, the bride part is obvious. That's language we still understand. The sister reference, that seems a little bit weird, but it's, it's familial. It's, it's a reference to how close they are emotionally. You know, in the ancient Near East, uh, in public settings, sisters and brothers were permitted to be more affectionate, more close, to act more lovingly than even a husband and a wife could. So the man is telling us something about how close she is to him, how close he feels to her. And you'll notice, if you look carefully in this section, he keeps calling her, my sister, my bride, or sometimes just my bride. Basically, it's a marked difference from the rest of the book. And it's clear that their sexual relationship will begin when they're husband and wife. Now, what exactly does he say about her? He says she has captivated his heart. He says that twice in verse 9. 
Whenever you, get, whenever you get repetition in poetry, it's for emphasis. They're trying to say something important. And that word captivated, we also could translate as stolen. And we still kind of use this language if we find two people in love, don't we? That we say, oh, she stole his heart or he stole her heart. But the man is telling her, I'm a fool for love. I'm out of my mind. I'm you know, mad with desire for her. You know, Rod Stewart power ballads are, are commencing in the backgrounds or whatever. But he says, with one glance, with one quick glance, with one jewel of her necklace, she's made him mad with love. And now we're all going to get a little eye-rolly at this point. Oh, these two, you know, here they go again. But just, just pause for just a moment. He's actually made an incredible self-reveal with his words. He doesn't actually compliment her yet. He tells her something very personal about himself. Maybe think of it this way. Picture someone you like. <laughs> or someone you haven't liked in the past, or whatever. What's easier to say to someone you like? You are so beautiful, I love the way you look, or I am deeply, profoundly in love with you. Now, that first sentence is nice. Nice to be told that you're beautiful, but it's safe. The second sentence is dangerous, <laughs> because if someone tells you you're beautiful over here, you can say, hey, thanks, I appreciate that, it's very kind of you, and you can kind of walk away from that conversation, but if someone comes up to you and tells you, you've bewitched me body and soul, you know, Mr. Darcy, Pride and Prejudice, or whatever, like that, that's a knife's edge, because if they respond in kind, it's like, all right, well, we're on our way, but if, but if they're not feeling it, and you just opened yourself up like that, like, it gets awkward, Maybe hurt, maybe disappointment. And the man here, what you need to see is he is self-revealing. He's taking risks. He's opening himself up to be hurt. And interestingly, I think in our understanding of the book, it happens after the wedding ceremony. He still takes risks. I think when I was younger, I imagined that you know, once you uh, loved someone and they loved you and you got married, that love would have far fewer risks. And indeed, in some ways, the risks are lessened or have lessened uh, as I've gotten married. But every time you reveal your, your heart to your spouse, every time you, you tell them you're still attracted to them or you're interested in sex or you let them know something very personal that's going on in your heart, you still risk. And compliments, frankly, are easier than transparency. They're safer. But self-revealing, risk-taking, it's important in love. And we see that in how he speaks to her. If you're married this morning, if you're engaged, take a little, take some time to think on how you speak to your beloved. Do you ever risk? Do you ever put yourself out there? Or do you tend to play it safe? Well, the man continues, a litany of compliments that evoke all kinds of scents and flavors. He says, we're going to run through these quickly, he says, her love is better than wine. Her smell is better than any kind of spice. Her lips drip nectar, think, you know, like from a flower. Uh, he says, under her tongue are sweet tastes like honey and milk. Her clothes smell like the mountains and trees of Lebanon. But then I think something interesting happens in verse 12. He says that his bride is a locked garden and a sealed fountain. Now, what does that mean? Well, recently I, I was in Halifax, and right downtown, if you've ever been to downtown Halifax, there's these public gardens, right? It's like, kind of like a giant city block, and uh, it's an oasis of trees and flowers and little ponds and, and rivers and all that stuff. But, um, but there's these gates that lead into the garden, and on the gate it says, please note that these gardens are open from 8 to 4 p.m. And then all around the garden are like this, uh, and on, on this massive city block, are like wrought iron fences with like, you know, uh, pointy spiky tops or whatever. Now why is that? Ever thought about that? Well, it harkens back to the way gardens originally worked. 
Gardens were not for public consumption. They were private and personal. The, the rich had them for their own uses. You couldn't just go wander around someone's garden like, oh, what are you growing over here? They, they were carefully cultivated for private use, hence why eventually public gardens became a big deal. Finally, all of us, you know, all the, all the regular people, all the poor people or whatever, we all get to enjoy a well-cultivated garden, not just the, not just the rich and the few. So what this man is saying is, his bride's body can be compared to a garden, well-cultivated, beautiful, you know, carefully arranged, uh, but also guarded. Her body's not open to anyone, but it's locked. Its fountains are sealed up. And look, we've touched on this multiple times in this series. I'm not going to belabor it this morning. But even the love poetry of the scriptures teaches us to be cautious with our bodies, to be stingy with who gets in. As Christians, we're told to be generous in so many ways. Generous with our money, generous with our time, generous with our energy, all kinds of ways. But over and over, the scriptures tell us to be selective and careful with who gets access to your body and to your bed. And until now, even at this point, he says the woman is a locked garden. Now, in verses 13 to 15, we see she's an amazing garden. The fruits of the best quality, there's spices, there's flavors, there's flowing water, wells, and streams. And if you're sort of into to gardening or botany or whatever, you might realize that the combination of plants listed in 13 to 15 is actually impossible to grow in one place. <laughs> you know, the botany people have said, you, you can't do this. There, there's no garden where all these things could exist alongside each other. You can't have a tree of frankincense, you know, beside the aloes, and you got some cinnamon and a, a grove of pomegranates. It's like, this is not a real place. And that's where the poetry comes in, right? <laughs> He's not trying to be literal. He's not saying, hey, look at all these things you're actually growing. It's metaphorical. It's meant to express that the body of this woman is full of all kinds of delights. And the human body is wondrous with its sensations and feelings. You know, we giggle when John Mayer tells his beloved that her body is a wonderland. But look, he's not that far off from the language of the song. The man is telling her, her body's this kind of paradise. It doesn't exist in the real world. And as we said at the beginning of today's sermon, that's how God made it to be. He made bodies to be tov, to be good. But the garden is still locked. Now, one quick thing before, before we move on here. If you agree with me, with, my, with our interpretation, that they are married at this point, and that something interesting is happening in the interaction between the man and his wife, and it's this. The man is not forcing himself upon his wife. He's not demanding his sexual rights as a husband. No, that's not how he treats her. He woos her, he romances her, he self-reveals, he offers himself to her. And I point this out for one reason. There's actually a vein of Christian teaching that goes like this. And I'm going to give you a few quotes. Sexually, a, husband, a Christian husband is supposed to, quote, conquer and colonize his wife, unquote. And in return, a wife's duty is to, quote, receive, surrender, and accept, Unquote. And another writes this, citing the very text we are talking today in the Song of Songs, saying that, quote, a Christian husband is never trespassing in his own garden, end quote. And the idea behind such teaching is this, that a, ma a man or a husband may demand sex from his wife whenever he pleases, and a wife is not free to say no. Now, for some of you, you're like, that's, that's shocking, that's kind of crazy, I've never heard that before you. I assure you, this kind of teaching is out there. And I've read it in Christian marriage books. But I tell you, this is not biblical teaching. It's not wise. And in some cases, that kind of view leads to little more than marital rape. Like we preached through 1 Corinthians a year ago or so. I can't really remember. But Paul tells the men, the husbands there, your bodies don't belong to you. 
Your, your body actually belongs to your wife. And furthermore, it belongs to Christ. And of course, the opposite is, or the same is true for women, you know, oppositely. But Paul is saying there, a husband may not force himself on his wife. He may not demand things of her. Whenever we come across sort of teaching on sex in the scriptures, we find it's mutual giving, mutual receiving, mutually submissive. It's the offering of our bodies to each other. And when one partner demands of the other, you have to do this for me, like we've left Christian teaching at that point. The man in the song, he woos his wife, he pursues her, but ultimately he waits for her to say yes. Okay, let's, turn to, let's talk about part two, the unlocked garden. Now one of the, 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 the strange parts, the foreign parts about Hebrew poetry is that they put their most important stuff in the middle. Uh, their poetry always forms these kinds of mountains where you kind of go up and up and up and you reach sort of a climax, a really important part in the middle, and then you go down the other side and it, you know, it makes a, a mountain or whatever. Whereas in English, we tend to do differently. We go up and 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 we hit a conclusion and then there's a, a really short sort of you know, addendum or, or, or whatever afterwards. Our, our mountaintop's kind of way over here at the end. Now I say this because there are 223 verses in the Song of Songs. And if you count from the beginning, 111, you arrive at chapter 4, verse 16. And then there's a verse, and then there's 111 more verses afterwards. In other words, verse 16 is the center of the book. And if you were a Hebrew poet, you know what you'd put there? The most important thing. Now you're like, well, that's confusing, because people are talking about wind. It's like, awake, north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Like, we're actually still, to this day, we're not sure what that means. <laughs> you know, it's not a Dune reference or whatever. None of these things had been written in. But then look at the second part of verse 16. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. So what's happening? The very center of the book? Consummation. They're together at last. She's welcomed him in. This is the center of the book. But also notice, there's no details this is, all, this is all we get. There's no description of techniques. It's not 10 hot tips or whatever. But the central point of Solomon's poetry is the husband and wife are together. And the curtain goes down. And that's all, that's all we get. And in fact, if you read 5 verse 1, it seems that they are finished. It's all written in the past tense. The man says he went into his garden. He tasted the fruits, ate the honeycomb, drank the wine and milk. But it's, it's over at that point. It's all past tense. And the language there, I think it's suggestive, but it's not crass. They're lying together, sort of rejoicing in the moment. Now, now, what do we learn from this? Well, to build off what I said before, a Christian view of sex and sexual intimacy more broadly is that each partner is not primarily concerned with getting pleasure but giving it. Have you seen how the man and the woman respond to each other in the song? He woos her and she invites him and he tells her what he loves about her. She's going to do the same later in the book. You'll see that. They delight in each other. You know, sometimes couples can get caught up in the performance of sex or the mechanics of it. Tim and Kathy Keller in their uh, marriage book, they, and they, have a, they have a chapter on sex in there, and they, they basically write, hey, when, early on in their marriage, sex wasn't going well. At times, uh, one partner or another wasn't satisfied. And when that happened, they both felt a great deal of disappointment, bordering on devastation. That's what they write. And I can relate. I bet some of you can. If sex isn't going well in your marriage, if it's painful, if it's not working for some reason, it can lead to feelings of, of insecurity and shame and guilt. Makes you feel inferior or incompetent as a man or as a woman. But the Kellers continue, I'm going to quote them, and this is what they write. 
But when we stopped worrying about what we were getting and started to say, well, what can we do to just give something to each other, then things started to move ahead. I think this is the question a Christian spouse ought to ask themselves when it comes to sex. Not what can you get, but what can you give? No matter how compatible, you know, in quotes, your partner is, you're going to differ in all sorts of ways. But if both partners come to the relationship figuring out, what can I give, then as, as the Kellers say, you're on your way. And by the way, that sometimes means telling your beloved what you like. Sometimes we get caught up in a kind of humility or self-effacement where we never say what we prefer, and we always default to, well, what do you want to do? But if a marriage is to be mutual, then both partners need the opportunity to serve the other. See, the man and the woman of the song, they, they're delighting in each other. And then comes a voice. The ESV labels it others, uh, as Stephen read, but the Hebrew is actually unclear. It's not the man, it's not the woman, we know that. Some commentators think this is God speaking. I, I don't know, it's sort of all, it's a bit of speculation at this point. But the voice tells them, or these others tell them, eat, drink, and be drunk with love. In other words, sex between a husband and wife, it's tov. It's good. It's a thing to be celebrated and enjoyed. But we need to talk about the real world, part three. Because the poetry is describing something good. It's showing us what sex uh, always, uh, was, was always meant to be. But you know as well as I that we don't live in that world. Even if we like, strive for it and seek it and work towards it, we know we live in a different world, and the world we live in, sex is often broken or painful or shameful or difficult or unreachable or frustrating, you know, or et cetera, et cetera. And perhaps this morning you feel like, man, I see this beautiful work of art in the text, but I can never have it. And even in my best sexual experiences, it doesn't fulfill me all the way down. And the reason that is is because though sexuality preceded sin in the garden, we've said that, it wasn't long before sin entered. And it wasn't a sexual sin. The first sin was not sexual, but it profoundly affected us in that way. After Adam and Eve, they ate the apple and their eyes were opened, they felt shame. That's what the Bible tells us. The first feeling was shame. And they covered themselves and they covered their bodies. And sin forever changed uh, our relationship to our bodies and to each other. No longer were we kind of absolutely free to pursue another in humility, but instinctively we became selfish. So the question we have to answer is, what should we do with all of our hang-ups, our sins, and our unfulfilled longings when it comes to sex? Well, our culture and our world actually has an answer. It's commonly called sexual freedom, sexual revolution, something like that. But the, the basically, the, the answer that, that the world kind of gives here is, the problem with sex is the rules. And if you just throw off the rules, we'd be liberated. No, you don't, you don't have to feel shame. You don't have to feel guilt. Just, just do whatever you want. Just stop feeling those things. Sounds lovely. <laughs> and for the last 50 years especially, you know, since the, the mid to late 60s, we've attempted this experiment. Free love. What if, what if we just made it free? Well, what we've discovered culturally is that when sexual freedom is a right, it quickly becomes slavery. See, we've said, oh, you're free to look at porn. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You don't have to feel ashamed about the magazines and the websites. And what we've learned, though, is that pornography kills love. It actually destroys your ability to be aroused by a real human being, and it addicts you at the same time. Lots of us know you aren't free to look at porn after a while. After a while, you have to look at porn, and it owns you. It enslaves you. 
Our culture has also said, you're free to sleep with whomever you please. No strings attached. No more regrets. You want men, whatever, women, multiple people. No shaming. And what we've learned about hormones tells us such a thing is physiologically impossible. There are always strings. Hookup culture hasn't made us richer. It's made us far poorer. We're not free to give ourselves away in sex. We're constantly on guard to make sure that no one's taking advantage of us. And additionally, research tells us, in general, the most sexually satisfied people are those in healthy long-term relationships. Hookup culture, sexual, sexual satisfaction, it's especially low for women who tend to get less out of these arrangements. In short, our freedom put us in jail. And maybe the problem wasn't what we thought it was. Now, hold on. I don't think rules are necessarily the answer. <laughs> Just because we know the law of God is good and we agree that it's good doesn't mean it solves all of our problems. People had the law for millennia and, and still had issues with sex. Just because you don't commit adultery doesn't mean um, your sex life is great. Or just because you grew up in church and, and, and worship God doesn't mean you, you never have issues with lust. So rules aren't necessarily the answer. What is the answer? If it's not unbridled freedom and if it's not really rules... Well, Ephesians 5.31, the Apostle Paul writes this. A man shall leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and they shall become one flesh, which we've been talking about today. But listen to what Paul says next. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And you're like, hold on. <laughs> Did Paul just say what I think he said? That the way a man unites with his wife is somehow about Christ and the church? Like, that's weird. What Paul is saying, I think it's really important. Sex in a fully committed relationship, the kind of oneness it brings, it's an appetizer of the joy that comes from being in spiritual union with God in Christ. And the highest heights that sex can ever hit, it's, it's sort of but a hint of what lies in store for the Christian. And a marriage, Paul is saying, with its sexual intimacy, is a kind of picture for how Christ loves his people. So therefore, this means something to you if you're single or if you're married. To, to a single person, this means on the days when it gets hard, or on the days when you want to give in, uh, the, the truth is what you really need is not another person, but to experience God's love for you in Christ. And it sounds a little bit funny, but you actually need the spousal love of Jesus. Not in the sexual way, but in a, in a profound way. And if you're married, this verse is a reminder, sex isn't everything. It's something, but it's not everything. It points beyond itself. Sex is never going to fill the void in your soul. There's never going to be a sexual experience you have from which you say, I am completely full, I never thirst again. Look, we can't fall for the lie that your spouse will be everything you need. She can't. He can't. What you need is to be in union with your creator. And sex is glorious, but it points to the eternal delight that Christians will experience in the new heavens and new earth. So as we come together uh, as a community with our sins or our shame or our guilt or our fears or our hopes or our dreams or our joys or our sadnesses, whatever you have related to sex... I invite you to remember Christ. Because it's Christ who came, giving of himself, spilling his life, so all of us who are spiritually dead may live. And it's Christ who redeems us from all we've done wrong, all the mistakes we've made, all the ways we've been sinful and self-centered. And it's Christ who made our bodies to have pleasure, who invites us to get married and to drink deeply of love. 
Sex will make a lot more sense and it'll find its proper place in your life when you can say to Jesus, how beautiful is your love? Your love is better than wine. Your love smells sweeter than any spice. It tastes better than my favorite drink. If you want to be the kind of person who can enjoy sex but be not controlled by it, who can offer it freely when the time is right, you need to understand that Christ has stolen your heart. He's come for you. Wherever you are this morning, wherever you find yourself, my prayer is the same, that God would give you the strength, the power to understand the height, depth, and breadth of his love for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we need your help in this area. Temptations abound. Uh, uh, Expectations are are high and are rampant. Uh, Sins are all over the place. Confusions, misunderstandings, there's so much here. Lord, we need your help. We need to be made right in our hearts. We need our hearts and our bodies and our minds to function right. So would you have mercy on us? Would you help us understand your love, what you've done for us in Christ? And it's in his name we pray, amen.